Hey, if you got a Bible, open up to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. Many years ago, there was uh, a story of a captain of a U.S. Navy frigate sailing up the Pacific coastline. And it was late at night, and there was a, a thick fog that had rolled in on, on the coastline there. And off in the distance, the Navy captain saw a very faint light. Assuming himself to be the larger of the ships, the captain told his signalman to send a message to the vessel off in the distance. The message read, alter your course 10 degrees south. And sure enough, within a few seconds, there was actually a return message that was given back to the captain. It said, alter your course 10 degrees north. The Navy captain became angry. His command had been ignored, so he, he told his signalman to send another message to the vessel. He said, alter your course 10 degrees south. This is the captain. And soon enough, another message came back. Alter your course 10 degrees north. This is Petty Officer 3rd Class Jones, sir. And immediately, the captain, now by now very, very angered by these repeated defiance of orders, he sent a final message. He said, alter your course 10 degrees south. I'm a U.S. Navy frigate captain. The reply came back, please, sir, alter your course 10 degrees north. I am a lighthouse. Yielding to others is not something that comes natural to us. We like to be independent. We like to be our own boss. We like to make our own rules. We like to do our own thing. We like to prove to others that we're in control, that we don't need anyone else telling us what to do. We certainly don't need anyone telling us how to live. But such stubbornness can often land us in a lot of trouble. And like this ship's captain, it can even, it, such pride, left unchecked, can even shipwreck our very life as we vainly try to prove our own importance or self-sufficiency. You know, the Bible has a lot of good advice when it comes to matters of authority and submission. Patterned on the example of Christ. Paul's letter to the Colossians has some particular wisdom for how we need to come under, to submit to proper authority. And that, in fact, is the title of today's message. We're in part three today of a four-part series. Part three entitled, Come Under Proper Authority. Come Under Proper Authority. This is part three of a series entitled, How to, how to Live Off on under up how to live off on under up in this section of Paul's letter to Colossae he's giving short one word pithy commands off put off the old man on put on the new man under come under proper authority and our last part will be up wise up and lift up prayer one word commands that are easy to learn, easy to remember, and they bring an easing and a sense of peace to our lives when followed. So if you have a Bible, would you stand with me as we read from Colossians chapter 3? We're going to read Colossians 3, 18 to 4, 1 today. Please stand for uh, the reading of God's Word. Colossians chapter 3, from verse 18 to 4, 1. Come under proper authority. Here we go, verse 18. Wives, Paul writes, submit to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter toward them. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bondservants or slaves... Obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service 
as men-pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. But he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done. And there is no partiality. Masters, give your bondservants what is just and fair, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Heavenly Father, would you help us now to understand these great admonitions for coming under proper authority. Lord, there's a lot of uh, worldly ideas and criticisms about Bible texts like these. Help us to see them in the context that you would want us to see them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Household codes, domestic responsibilities. This section of the letter that Paul wrote to the church at Colossae was known as a household code, a list of domestic responsibilities. Such codes were actually quite common in first century Asia Minor. The Romans had their codes. They would have long lists of domestic codes that they would offer to their communities. The Jews had their codes, long list of responsibilities for men, women, and children, and so on and so forth that they'd give to the community. And so also Christians... Paul, in particular, came to develop his own ideas about household codes or domestic responsibilities. Now, so many of those who approach this portion of Colossians, they read it so selectively, so selectively. The world, and sadly, even many Christians, read only the opening clauses of verses 18, 20, and 22. They read things selectively, read things like, Wives, submit to your husbands. Children, obey your parents. Slaves, obey in all things your masters. They read these things selectively, and they immediately react to them, thinking how archaic, how outdated, how out of touch the Bible is with the modern world. Surely the Bible's teaching cannot possibly be followed here. Right? On your outline there, there's, there's many modern criticisms of Colossians 3, 18 to 4, 1. I want you to grab a pen if you've got one there in the, in the pew back in front of you. The modern criticism of Colossians 3, 18 to 4, 1 is this. Number one, they say it's misogynistic. That is to say, Paul's idea of submission devalues women. That's a criticism often leveled against Colossians 3. That it's misogynistic. Paul's idea of submission devalues women. That's one criticism. A second criticism that the world and even some Christians give to this portion of God's word is that Paul urges men to assert their power and authority. That Paul is a man's man and all he does in all his writings is assert that men firm up their power and authority. He urges men to assert their power and authority. A third criticism leveled against Colossians 3.18-4.1 is that it is pro-slavery. That Paul turns a, a blind eye to the institution of slavery. They thought, many think he had such an opportunity here to debunk slavery and instead he left it intact. And these critiques you know they might be valid if all we did was to read Colossians 3 completely out of context if all we did was read the opening clauses of verses 18 and 20 and 22 then these criticisms might be warranted but the truth is not one of these criticisms are valid and a careful contextual reading of Colossians 3.18-4.1 will prove that each of these criticisms are not valid at all, actually. 
And in fact, they'll prove this. A, a more careful contextual reading demonstrates that, number one on your outline, that Paul is not misogynistic. Instead, he emphasizes mutual deference for all. And anyone, wife or otherwise, who willfully submits to another is following the example of Christ. I'll say that again, that Paul is not misogynistic, we will learn. Instead, he emphasizes mutual deference for all. And anyone, wife or otherwise, who willfully submits to another is following the example of Christ. Secondly, we will learn that Paul is not paternalistic. Instead, he speaks against those who abuse their power and wield a heavy, unjust hand. That he's not paternalistic. Instead, he speaks against those who abuse their power and have a heavy, unjust hand. Finally, we're going to demonstrate today that Paul is not pro-slavery. Instead, he declares the equality, the equality of all persons in Christ and he becomes the chief advocate for the emancipation of Onesimus, a runaway slave who was carrying the letter back to Colossae. Onesimus and Tychicus, if you remember way back in our dramatization of Colossians, Onesimus was a runaway slave, and he and Tychicus, would, they were literally the, the, the carriers of the letter to the church in Colossae. Paul is going to be Onesimus' chief advocate, as we shall soon see. On the back of your outline, I want to say one more thing before we get to the text. And this is so important. I can't emphasize this enough. On the back of your outline there, Colossians 3, 18-4-1, is filled with particular, particular admonitions of the general Christian principle of mutual submission, which are singled out due to the special transformative effect such behavior can have on oneself and others. I'll say that again. Don't miss this. Colossians 3, 18-4-1 is filled with particular, he's taking particular instances in household codes, particular instant admonitions of the general Christian principle of mutual submission. And he singles them out, these particular ones, because they have a special transformative effect. They change us and others more so than you might ever imagine. They have a special transformative effect uh, when, such when we have such behavior in, in ourselves and in others. So, Let's, don't take my word for it, though. Let's get to the text. Let's see if, in fact, we can demonstrate these things about Colossians 3, 18 to 21. First, we start in verses 18 and 19. Colossians 3, 18 and 19. Wives, Paul writes, submit to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter toward them. As was already said, the main critique of verse 18 is that it is misogynistic. But the directive in verse 18 is not the only instance in the New Testament where submission is advocated within a relationship. In fact, this is one of the many instances in the New Testament where the Greek word hypotasso, or to be subject to, or to submit to, is used in a, in a variety of different relationships. You could think of young people submitting to their elders in 1 Peter chapter 5. Uh, you could also think of men and women submitting to their government in 1 Peter chapter 2 and Romans 13. You could think of the church submitting, hypotasso, to Christ in Ephesians chapter 5 verse 24. And we could go on. The very qualities that we learned to put on last week those very Christian qualities that we're told to put on, like tender mercy, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, forbearance, forgiveness, love, peace, these are the qualities that lend themselves to showing honor and deference to another. And all of you were told to put them on. 
Anyone who puts on these Christ-like characteristics that were listed in Colossians 3, 12 to 15, anyone who puts those on is going to become a person who shows deference. That's precisely what Paul tells us to do in Ephesians 5. He says in Ephesians 5, he says, Be filled with the Spirit. He says, speak to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then comes verse 21. Submitting to one another in the fear of God. Submitting to one another in the fear of God. What's most notable about Ephesians 5.21 and, and the concept of mutual submission or mutual deference is that it is given right, right before Paul goes on to tell wives to submit to their husbands. Far from being misogynistic in orientation, Ephesians 5.21 makes clear that Paul has the idea of mutual submission, that he has the idea of mutual deference and honor in mind for all Christians. And so it shouldn't surprise us to learn that Christians, it shouldn't surprise us at all, actually, to learn that Christians ought to willfully submit to one another. Because you see, even our Lord Jesus Christ did that very thing. In 1 Corinthians 15, 28, it says, Now when all things are made subject to Christ, then the Son Himself will also, hypotasso, be subject to God the Father who put all things under him that God may be all in all. 1 Corinthians 15, 28, Jesus submits to the Father. Elsewhere in the New Testament, we could showcase how the Holy, Holy Spirit submits to Christ and to the Father. Willfully. Shows deference. Voluntarily. Within the Godhead. Are there criticisms leveled? against the Holy Spirit or of Christ for subjecting themselves to such humiliation? Does the world have uh, the same ideas in mind uh, of prejudice, uh, of partiality when it comes to how Christ willfully submits to the Father or how the Spirit willfully submits to Christ and the Father? Paul emphasizes mutual deference for all and anyone wife or otherwise, who willfully submits to another is following the example of Christ. Ben Witherington writes, this is on your outline, submission is a normal and expected part of a close Christian relationship. I'll read that again. Submission is a normal and expected part of a close Christian relationship. You can't have a strong relationship with another Christian if there's not mutual deference between the two of you. You might think, well, never? I mean, you, 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 look, if, if all it is is a top-down relationship and your Christian relationship with anyone, if there's never a return, if there's never any kind of reciprocation, if there's never the leader or the one who's supposedly uh, the, the, the head of the, the relationship, if there's no give, no yield ever in his or her life, that relationship will suffer. If there's no deference that he shows, the subordinate one, that relationship will suffer. Witherington says submission is a normal and expected part of a close Christian relationship. When a wife submits to her husband, it doesn't devalue who she is. Quite the contrary, it actually enhances her spiritual development because she becomes more like Jesus. It doesn't devalue her, the subjection to her husband, hypotasso. It elevates her. It causes her to actually be more like Christ. And so the question then might be asked, well, Neil, if Paul is emphasizing mutual submission in Ephesians 5.21 uh, to one another, then why does he so often particularly single out the example of wives submitting to husbands? That's a fair question. If, if, as I've argued in Ephesians 5.21, that there's the general Christian principle of mutual deference, I to you, you to me, us to one another, 
If there's a mutual, general principle of mutual deference in Ephesians 5.21, then why does Paul often go out of his way to single out the particular instance of a woman or a wife submitting to her husband? I think the answer, we can't be sure, because the Bible doesn't say why he particularly emphasizes this every time, but I think the answer to that question has much to do with the special transformative effect that a wife's respect can have on her husband. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. If you've got a Bible, turn to 1 Peter chapter 3, toward the end of your Bibles there. 1 Peter 3, I think it has to do, and I think there's good biblical precedent for it, why Paul continually singles out this relationship for submission. I think it has a lot to do with the effect a woman can have on a man. 1 Peter 3, verse 1. Peter writes, Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands. And then he gives a reason. That even if some do not obey the word, they, without a word from their wife, may be won by the conduct of their wives when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. I'll read that again. Wives, likewise, be submissive to your husbands that even if some of your husbands do not obey God's word, that they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. You know what Peter's saying there? He says, women, you have incredible power. That's what he's saying. Ladies, you have incredible influence incredible influence over the men in your life, particularly your husband. But I, I'd also say to fathers, to grandfathers, to brothers, and so on and so forth. Particularly though to your husbands, you have incredible influence and power to change him by the way you treat him. Remember, Colossians 3, 18-4-1 is filled with particular admonitions of a general Christian principle which are singled out because they have special transformative effect when they're used. Why does Paul single this one out? Why does he so often tell wives to submit to their husbands? Because he knows the effect it will have on a man. In his book, uh, Love and Respect, I often highlight this book. It's one of the most highly recommended books I can offer to any of you. Uh, whether you're married or unmarried, Love and Respect is a fantastic Christian book for understanding male-female relations, and particularly that in marriage. And in his book on Love and Respect, Emerson Egeritz recounts a story of one of, his, uh, one of his chaplains in college. And this is what he writes. He says, When I attended Wheaton College, the chaplain there was Jim Hutchins, who had also been a chaplain in the Vietnam War. And Jim told me, that the Viet Cong fighters would wound an American soldier, not kill him, knowing that his buddies would then seek to rescue him. Viet Cong snipers would then seek to kill those who came out to try to drag the wounded man back to safety. Hutchins would often hear the heart cry of a GI saying, quote, I have to go. I have to help Joe. I can't leave him there. I've got to go. He's my friend. Honor and love compelled the American GI in Vietnam as it has down through every war in history. One husband wrote to me, I've been in, and, and then he's recounting one other story. One husband wrote to me, I've been in the Air Guard, Air Guard for 14 years with an additional six years of active duty. During your conference, you made, me, you made many references about men willing to die for their spouses or their nation. This certainly made an impression upon both of us. For my wife had always seen my military service as equating to war and death, but I see it as honor and duty. I am committed not only to my country, but to the men I serve with. Only men who serve in such a capacity, men in the military, firefighters, policemen, these are the men that understand the bonds that are formed and the loyalty you feel to one another. Why do I read that? because it showcases that in a man, inborn in a man, essential to his being, his honor and respect. 
That's who men are. That's why men go out and die for their country. That's why they would go out and die for their wife or girlfriend. Because inborn in a man is a deep-seated, rooted sense of honor. And Paul and Peter knew of that inborn trait in a man. And so they single wives out in the New Testament. They take a singular, a particular admonition of a general Christian principle and they take that singular expression of it and say, and this one, if you submit in this way, it will have special transformative effect. Not misogynistic, but out of a desire to give a man one of his most fundamental needs, honor. To give him honor, even when he doesn't deserve it. Peter says that will change a man's heart better than anything else ever could. That when a woman by her, without a word, by her own chaste conduct, that she can affect a man's behavior, change a man's heart. Ladies, show your men honor. Show him unconditional honor, even when it's not deserved. The Bible says you will see a transformative effect in doing so. And men, Paul has a word for you. You're not off the hook. Take a look at verse 19 of chapter 3 in Colossians. Colossians 3.19, men, husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter toward them. Husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter toward them. It should be noted at the onset of this admonition uh, to husbands in verse 19 that virtually all first century Roman and Jewish household codes avoided any directives to the head of the household. Let me say that again. Don't miss this. It should be said at the onset of, of verse 19 that the majority of, of pagan, Roman, and even Jewish household codes, literary codes that would be given to the community, the vast majority of them never gave directives to the head of household. They never gave directives to the man. In other words, all of the directives, all of the teaching of that culture, pagan, Jewish, or otherwise, was always given to the subordinate members, to the women, to the children. The men were always writing codes saying, and the women should do this, and the children should do this, and the ladies should do this, and the kids should do this. Never directives to men. Shows you what kind of paternalistic culture that was. When Paul wrote the word, and husbands, love your wives, the people went, what? This is a directive to a man. They would have read it, and they would have said, this is, I've never seen a directive to a head of household. It wasn't in their literature. It wasn't in their context. It wasn't normal for their society. And so just the mentioning by Paul in verse 19 of the head of household, of the husband to love his wife, was revolutionary in first century Asia Minor. Not only does he give counsel to the man, but he criticizes the man for his most common shortcoming. He criticizes the man for that shortcoming of bitterness, of sharpness, you might also call it. He says, husbands, love your wives and don't be bitter toward them. Don't be sharp with them. Don't be harsh with them. Paul says, I know, I'm a man. And I know that common pitfall that a man can fall into. To be sharp, to be harsh, to be rude, to be mean, to be spiteful toward his wife. Paul says, buck that tendency. Redirect that bitterness into unconditional love and then just watch the effect that it will have on your wife. The deep and earnest love of a husband for his wife will bring about a great gentleness in a woman. It'll soften her. Such love will give her the kind of worth that she's always been looking for. Such love will have a transformative effect on both wife and husband. And that's why Paul singles it out for husbands to pay attention to. So ladies, submit to Show honor to your husbands. Men, unconditionally love and cherish your wives. Outdo one another in these endeavors. See who can show love or honor first. Who will disarm the next fight? 
by showing love or honor first? Who will put an end to the next argument by showing love or honor first instead of bitterness or wrath? Once one of you heeds Paul's directive, you will both reap many relational and spiritual benefits. That's why he singles these out. The household codes now continue for children and fathers. Look at verse 20. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. In a world, in our world, where too often children rule the house with their demands, with their unchecked selfishness, here Paul reminds us of good and proper parent-child relations. He says a child is to obey their parents in all things, which of course assumes that, that the request is good and reasonable, that it's not unlawful. But before the accusation is leveled against Paul that he's being paternalistic or, or overbearing, before the world can criticize Paul for devaluing children here in verse 20, take a look at who Verse 20 is addressed to. Paul doesn't say, parents, make sure your children obey. He doesn't say, mothers, get your children in line. He doesn't say, fathers, have a harsh hand until your children respond. Instead, he writes, children, obey your parents in all things. What's notable here is that Paul addresses his words to children. That is to say, they are participating in this Christian experiment. They are participating in the worship setting. They are hearing children, little children, are hearing Paul's letter read to the church in Colossae. Paul has high regard for children. He has high regard for their ability to think and to act like Jesus, even at a young age. And we do our children a disservice to them when we expect less of them and not more. We do our children a disservice when we do not read admonitions like this to them rather than do it for them. A lot of parents, uh, they, they, they'll make one of two mistakes. They'll, they'll coddle their, their children too long. Or they'll do everything for their children. They'll, they'll force or they'll compel themselves upon their children. Neither is what Paul has in mind. He says, treat them like a person. They can take it. My son can understand Colossians 3.20. I should read it to him and say, guess what, Bennett? The Apostle Paul wrote something to you. Do you want to hear it? My daughter Mallory can understand Colossians 3.20. She can comprehend it. Paul has high regard for children. He wants us to have the same. Verse 20 is yet another particular instance of a general principle, this principle of mutual submission, that is singled out because it will be especially transformative in the child-parent relation, in that relationship. One of those transformative effects it's repeated in the New Testament as it is in the Old, is that a child who obeys and who honors their parents Long life will be afforded to them, it says in the Bible. That's a, pro that, that's a proverb that's given both in the Old Testament and reconfirmed in the New. It says that the general rule of thumb is if a child honors, shows deference to, obeys their mom and dad, long life will be given to them. Great honor will be given to them. Transformative effect. And Paul has a special word a particular admonition of this principle for fathers he says and fathers don't provoke your children lest they become discouraged again paul is highlighting something that he knows is common in a man men can be ornery men can be sarcastic men can be mean and paul knew of this tendency my mother and grandparents are here today and they will attest to you if you were to ask them when i was growing up I would go out of my way to annoy and irritate my sister. I would take special delight in it, actually, in pushing her buttons 
and just, just nudging her just far enough so that she would scream. And then I would, you know, just kind of twiddle my thumbs like, what, what did I do? What did I do? Men, you, Scott, <laughs> you and I, we, we both, we like to push people's buttons, don't we? And men as a whole, we all, we, we, and ladies can attest, sometimes men can be ornery sarcastic a little mean a little irritating guys men that's why paul singles this singles this out he singles out this particular admonition because he knows your tendency and he says particularly to you don't provoke your children i have to learn that i often provoke my children i often just kind of poke 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 a little too far as a dad and then they become discouraged don't provoke your children Menander, who was a, 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 a Greek poet of the day, pagan poet, he wrote, A father who is always threatening does not receive much reverence. I'll read it again. A father who is always threatening does not receive much reverence. So not only is it provocation, but it's also a harsh word or a harsh tone that a father can of, often have with his children. Men, be loving, be encouraging to your children. Your sons will follow your example whether it's one of sarcasm and meanness or one of gentle love. Your daughters, men, I know this already as I watch Mallory, your daughters will gain so much self-worth from how you treat them. So be tender and affectionate with them. Avoid incessant harsh tones, which only lead your children to become discouraged and disheartened. Finally, we come to the issue of slaves and masters. Verses 22 to four one, Paul writes, "Bond servants, slaves, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. And whatever you do, do it heartily, as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. For you serve the Lord Christ. But he who does wrong, he will be repaid for what he has done. There is no partiality. So masters, give your bond servant." what is just, what is fair, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Here some might wonder, well, why are we bothering reading this section of Colossians? We don't have slavery today, Neil. What can we possibly learn from a text like this? Others read uh, this portion uh, between slaves and masters and they say, yeah, I don't get it. Why didn't Paul ban slavery here? Why doesn't he abolish it? He had an opportunity. Is Paul pro-slavery? The answer is no. Paul was not pro-slavery whatsoever, in fact. In fact, his writings, Paul's writings in particular, are perhaps some of the greatest impetus behind abolitionist movements across the world, most of which have been spurred on by Christians. Read, just read, the companion letter to Philemon. There's a little one-chapter book in your New Testaments, the book of Philemon, the letter to Philemon. And in it, Paul is advocating his great love and affection for Onesimus, a runaway slave of Philemon. Philemon, as we learned earlier on in the book of Colossians, was perhaps the host of the church in Colossae. He had a big house. He was a businessman in the community. And he had a large house and the church met in his home. But he, even as a Christian man, probably recently converted, he still maintained uh, the master-slave relationships that he had. And one of his slaves ran away, Onesimus. And Paul sends Col the, letter to, the letter of Colossians and the letter to Philemon with Onesimus and Tychicus and walks it back to Philemon and to the church. In it, Paul tells Philemon. He urges him, doesn't tell him. He actually asks him to do it voluntarily. He says, I want you to forgive Onesimus, and I want you to set him free. He becomes the, Paul becomes the greatest advocate for a runaway slave in that day. Remember what Paul said also earlier in Colossians chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. He says, we put on the new man. We put on the new man who's renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Where there's neither Greek 
nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Paul was a champion of the idea that mankind were created equal, that it didn't matter what socioeconomic status you came from, that it didn't matter what gender you were, that it didn't matter whether you were slave or whether you were free, God looked upon all with no partiality. That's what Paul believed. And the knowledge that God shows all of us such magnificent grace and favor is the reason, is the very is the reason why Paul urges, whether you're slave or free or anything in between, why he urges us to just give thanks where we are. Give thanks where you are. In 1 Corinthians 7 he says, were you called to Christ while you were a slave? Don't be concerned about it. If you can, if you can be made free, use it. But he who is called in the Lord while the slave is the Lord's free man, and he who is called while free is Christ's slave. Paul says, don't worry about socioeconomic status. You're all slaves of Christ. Don't worry about gender roles, about who's, who's worker and who's, who's boss and who's, who's master and who's subservient to who. Paul says, you're all free in Christ and you're all servants of Christ. Far from being pro-slavery, the more remarkable thing about the New Testament is that the authors frequently, frequently address slaves other first century household codes the jewish codes the pagan codes all the literature never addressed slaves you know why because slaves were not were, were not deemed worthy of such address they were not deemed worthy of the ink on the paper and so when the romans when the pagan romans or when the jews would write codes for their community they would never speak to the slave direct because they didn't view him or her worthy of it. Four centuries before the time of the Apostle Paul was the great Greek philosopher Aristotle. You know what Aristotle taught about slavery? He said that slaves are property. He said that sla the issues of justice and fairness do not apply when discussing slaves. Issues of justice and fairness, Aristotle taught, do not apply when discussing slaves. But Paul in Colossians... Four centuries later, not only, this is what Paul says, he says, not only are you slaves worthy of personal address, but you are equally worthy of God's love and salvation. You are like free men. You are like a whole person. You are a whole person whose life and conduct and future matter to God. You are a full-fledged representative of Jesus, and you're valuable. And so Paul addresses them. Slaves, bondservants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh. Literally in Greek, he says, slaves, obey your kurios, your Lord, your earthly lords, knowing that you have another kurios, the Lord Christ in heaven, who's watching you. He uses the same term. He says, and don't obey them with eye service. Don't watch the clock. Don't only serve them when they're looking upon you. But in sincerity of heart, fear God. Whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men. I was uh, driving in Mission Viejo. I was driving down uh, Alicia Parkway. And I was stopped at a stoplight. And I turned to my right. And there was a man fixing uh, sprinklers. He must have been contracted by the city of Mission Viejo to fix the sprinklers on the side of the, uh, of the hillside there. And the man was fixing the sprinklers. And he got up as I was sitting there parked at a stoplight. And I just was watching him. And he got up, and he saw some trash up on the hillside. And he started walking up, and he was picking up trash. Grabbed about four or five different pieces of trash, put it in his pocket, went back to his truck, and put it in the trash can in the back of his truck. I thought to myself, that man did not have to do that. No one was watching him. No one. He was contracted to fix the sprinklers, not to pick up the trash. But yet, this man went out of his way, not with eye service, not, not with anyone watching over him, went out of his way to just do something kind, considerate. I wonder if he was serving the audience of one. You see, we have better motivation to work. 
We have better motivation than a paycheck to work. We have better motivation than the praise of a boss to work. We have better motivation than just receiving accolades or honor for the things that we do in this earthly life. We serve an audience of one, Paul says. We have Almighty God to please. And when we work as unto Him, we can be sure He takes notice. Verse 24, knowing that from the Lord you'll receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. But he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done. And there's no partiality. There is eternal remuneration for our work on earth. When our only motivation is an earthly paycheck, our work ethic will wane. But when we come to grips with the notion that God is storing up for us a reward, our work ethic will grow stronger. And we needn't fret, we need not fret about how others are working, how hard they're working around us. We needn't fret about whether the boss is too harsh or, or, or too difficult. Because you know, Paul also reminds us in verse 25 that he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done. There's no partiality with God. Salvation is by grace, but the Lord looks at our works. He looks at what we do in this life. And there will be reward for those who serve Him faithfully. And there will be loss for those who do not. So we keep about our own business, you might say. The business of rightly representing Jesus. That we might not lose our reward. Finally, a word to masters. He says, Masters, verse, chapter 4, verse 1, give your bondservants what is just, what is fair, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. In the first century Roman context, the only thing that masters were obligated to give slaves was food and clothes. That's it. Food and clothes. Paul knew that code. He knew that household code. That everything the people in, his, in that church in Colossae had ever heard was that all you need to give to your slave is a piece of bread and a shirt on his back. And Paul said, I'm going way beyond that. Masters, you give your bondservants what is just and fair. Knowing that you have a master in heaven. What principles, what helpful principles for the modern workplace today, this whole section, that employees should work hard as to the Lord, not merely for the boss, not merely out of eye service, and that the boss should treat his employees justly, fairly, not with partiality. What principles that we can apply in this life? Far from being merely archaic, Far from being uh, a teaching from a bygone era. Far from being misogynistic or paternalistic or pro-slavery. Paul's words in Colossians 3.18-4.1 were actually revolutionary. They were the first ever household codes to directly address the men, the head of the household. They were the first ever household codes to directly address slaves those whom everyone else in that culture thought were just property. Paul says, our old nature, our old nature says, don't you yield. Don't you submit. Don't you relinquish your power. You assert your rights. You assert your position. You demand honor. You demand respect. You deserve it. That's what our old nature says. Paul says, but you've got a higher nature now. You put on a new man. And it's time to imitate the one whom you call Lord. The one who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bond servant, coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, Jesus humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Folks, Paul wants us all the general principle here, he wants us all to mutually submit to and defer to one another. That we might all be like Christ. And those particular instances of that that he singled out here in Colossians 3, 18-4-1, you know why he singled them out? Not because he's misogynistic or paternalistic or pro-slavery, he singles them out because when you follow these particular expressions of deference and submission, 
when you follow these particular expressions of, of checking your power, dads, fathers, masters, bosses, when you follow these particular admonitions, Paul says, you will see incredible life change in your marriage, in your family, at home, at work, in the church. So pay heed to them and work heartily to the Lord and not to men. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, for uh, this lesson in, uh, in household codes. Lord, this is always a text that uh, can ruffle feathers of those who are very sensitive um, to the ideas of, of submission, of deference. Also, it can be difficult for those who wield their power very strongly and harshly to hear these multiple admonitions to keep that power in check and Christ-like. Lord, wherever we are on that spectrum, let us learn from this teaching. Let us come under proper authority. Let us realize that, that the whole totality of the Christian life, that, that the experience of Christ was one who gave himself up for all, who deferred his own interests, who submitted to willfully the Father, who asked his son to go to that cross and die for the world. That's who we're following, Lord. We're following Christ. And so it should be easy, actually, not hard. It should be easy, knowing that we have your spirit within us, to follow these admonitions, to do them joyfully, to know that these particular instances of deference and submission will especially bring harmony and peace to our home, to our work, to our very lives. Would you help us, Lord, live out these particular expressions of deference to one another? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.